Let's see you again. Oh, wow, that's a lot. Uh, appreciate everybody coming out today. Um, as, as Jerry said, you don't like me. So I, I, I really appreciate you being here. So I'm Chad Curry. I'm an alcoholic. Sobriety birth date of uh, September 20th, 2020. I have a home group. It's the Way Out Group of Alcoholics Anonymous in uh, Burnham, Pennsylvania. Um, I have a sponsor, and I'm, I'm blessed to know the difference between being sponsored and just having a sponsor, right? Uh, my sponsor is a guy that I stay current with. Uh, I'm completely open and honest with him. Um, he's it's developed into a relationship that I got nothing to hide. Uh, he's he's kind of just led the way and giving giving me some suggestions, simple suggestions to do daily uh, that he's used, and it has in turn completely revolutionized my life and the relationship that I have with a God of my understanding. Um, so it's an honor to be asked to to come here today. You know, it's cool to be in a room of people who may or may not like you and show up anyway, and, and we'll still call you friend, and, and Steve Moore, you know, so that's, that's great. Um, so yeah, I was, I was asked to come to do the history talk today, and um, I'm kind of a history nerd at times, so I'm going to, I have an outline here, and it's to make sure I don't get in the weeds, and just kind of stay, stay simple, um, but this is kind of going to be like a Quentin Tarantino movie, if anyone's ever seen those, right, we're going to start at the current day, and then go all the way back to the beginning, right, um, so... I just want to kind of tell everybody a little bit about myself, qualify just a tiny bit, right? I, uh, I was born in Lewistown, Pennsylvania. I drank and drugged most of my, my teenage years, um, and I always had these consequences that would stop me from drinking how I really wanted to drink, right, or, or using how I really wanted to use these outside issues, whatever it was. Um, and then as a result of me not caring about those things and this physical allergy and this phenomenon of craving developing over time and getting worse and worse, None of those other things mattered to a point where I drank away a wife and kids, um, almost drank away a career in the military, um, and finally I, I drank away my will to live. And that brought me to a point where, you know, I was kind of ready to go to AA, but I was only going um, to get rid of my back problems, as I refer to them, right? Like my wife's on my back, work's on my back, parents on my back. Um, and they, they would get off my back and I'd go drink because I wasn't doing anything, right? I wasn't open-minded enough or willing enough to, to have any type of spiritual experience or applying the principles because I didn't want to change, right? I wanted to do what I wanted to do, and I was just going to keep, you know, research and development to find out exactly how I could do it and still get away with it. Uh, and that did not work, and that's why I'm here in front of you today. Uh, so I, I got sober um, September 20th, and, you know, I, I found a sponsor very early on that uh, just kind of gave me some suggestions, right? And in that, he said, he would pretty much tell me, like, if I'd ask him questions about, well, you know, if in my relationship with God, if he, what would he say about this? And he'd be like, you already said it. Um, or, like, you know, I have this question about, you know, what did, where did the Oxford group come from? He's like, well, why don't you go read a book? You know, like, he empowered me, right? And that, so I read a lot of books. Um, and that's, that's probably the only reason I'm here today is just because I've, I've absorbed some knowledge and I've put some things into practice and I've watched a lot of you around me um, and try to emulate those things that you do. And I just hope that I can find a way to, to stay on track and you said I got to 1129 huh and uh and then we'll, we'll we'll figure it out so the Oxford group is is really where the the concepts and principles of Alcoholics Anonymous came from and there's one guy who kind of revolutionized the Oxford group in, in that movement and that's a guy named Frank Buckman um he was born in 1908 in Pennsburg Pennsylvania I'm the only one that excited. That's cool. Um, so, but, uh, so this is a very Christian guy, right? That's that's just how he grew up. He went to seminary. Um, he he was doing all these things in the church and with religion. And uh, basically, at one point, he went to a Keswick convention in the UK, 
and he had this spiritual experience that he had never felt before. Um, and he realized he was doing everything wrong, right? Um, and he realized that there were a lot of character defects that were blocking him off from a relationship with God. Um, and so he left that, this sermon, essentially, um, that's what it was, and he wrote six letters to these people he was holding resentment towards, uh, and just said, hey, uh, I'm sorry for these things I did. Um, I have no ill will toward you, but it's blocking me off from, from being of maximum usefulness to God and those about me. Um, he sent those letters off, and then he immediately started to help others. Um, and through that, right, you get to... Like 1909, he's graduated seminary, he's come back from Keswick, and he becomes the, the director of the YMCA at Penn State University. We are. Um, now, at, at the time, you know, they say the football team wasn't very good, and that's still debatable now since I'm in ACC country. I think we're pretty good, and it's probably because of Frank. But this was just a, a small town. Uh, I think the quote was like, it was out in the middle of nowhere, and no one was willing to listen to anybody that wasn't from there. Right, um, and, and trust me, I can relate to that culture and that mindset. Um, moving back there after 15 years, and it, it's probably it was probably way worse back then. But this was a guy that, you know, really hadn't had much experience of, of working with other people, and he's just trying to develop this relationship with his higher power so that he can maximize the effort and kind of turn this place around. Um, and what happened was, over just one year of being there, the students that were enrolled in membership in YMCA jumped from 33 percent to 75 percent. And all he was doing was saying, hey, come out here. Um, I'm just going to tell you basically what happened in my life and these things that I wasn't willing to let go. Um, but as a result of just trying to not harbor these resentments, and I'm going to help you guys. I've been relieved of all that, and I have this relationship, and I live a, a free life. Um, and that just started to explode in central Pennsylvania um, to a point where uh, he saw this guy named Bill Pickle. Now, if you ever go to State College, there's a place called Bill Pickle's Tap Room. Um, so it's not the best really uh, dictation of somebody who recovered um, because <laughs> Frank Buckman really just kind of, for lack of a better term, evangelized this guy in the street. And what happened was Bill Pickle was his bootlegger. Um, that his family was like well known. His dad was a, was a Civil War officer and they lived up on Pickle Hill. Um, it's Bullsburg, Pennsylvania. And basically everyone in the town knew him as the town drunk bootlegger just terrible guy he would always run around on his on his wife and do all these things that i can relate to right probably pretty women in tight dresses he loved them i get that um so one day frank sees him out in public and he's you know he's outside of a bar and frank just something told him hey i need to go to this guy uh and he said he went up and talked grabbed him by the right arm so that he couldn't hit him that's what he was afraid of right he builds a fighter i'm sure a lot of us were too i was for this alcoholic i was a fighter too um, and, and Frank just grabbed him and he said, hey, when are you going to stop living this way um, and surrender your life to a higher power? Um, and no one had ever talked to Bill like that. Uh, so he just kind of broke down, basically got to his knees and was crying, was pointing at this church across the street and said, you know, I, I was there when this was built. There's a penny of mine that's in the cornerstone of that building. Um, and I've just been living life on my own and, and trying to manage it on my own, and I can't, and I don't know what to do about it. He said, well, why don't you come up to Toronto, Canada with us? We're going to do a house party up there, and uh, we'll, we'll see what we can help you with. And he said, if you give me that beaver skin cap on your head, I'll come with you. And Frank reluctantly handed it over to him, and that's kind of that was the, the first recovery of alcoholics in the Oxford group documented. I'm obviously not AA. Now, Frank went all over the world trying to pass these principles on to other people. Um, and as that expanded and grew, um, they, were, they ended up in the UK again in, in Oxford, at Oxford University. 
it was him and four other or five five other people, one female and four males that were just kind of religious religious people of the time. Um, and, and basically, what happened there is it grew to a point where they were having these house parties, and all they would do is ask you to come in and listen. And then, if you liked what they had to say and you wanted to live this surrendered life, they would basically make an appointment with you the next day and say, "Okay, you're going to go through some of these concepts that, that we had laid out." Um, and, and Frank's quote is, is like the Oxford group is really just a name created from the, the American public. Um, Frank's quote is saying like, I wouldn't call it anything. I would just call it the movement. Like we're just trying to change lives here, right? Um, make the world a better place. And that's kind of what happened, um, for up until about 1931. Um, now the Oxford group still exists today. It's called Initiatives of Change. They're headquartered in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, I haven't checked it out yet. If you do, let me know. Cause it's, it looks vastly different than it did. And, you know, not to get too far into the politics of all of that, but basically Frank was so convinced that he could help anyone um, just by applying, applying a few simple principles uh, that he was trying to essentially convert uh, Henrik Himmler. Um, and then the American public painted him as this terrible guy, Nazi sympathizer, and he was pretty much cast out from uh, Calvary Mission in New York City, and Sam Shoemaker basically moved all his stuff out. Um, it, that's just the politics of it. But... If you look at the rest of Frank's life, he, he went to the grave applying these principles and still trying to help. After everybody pushed him away and didn't want him, um, and I think that's admirable. That's the reason I bring that up, right? And it's this concept of, like, I, as long as I'm continuing to develop this relationship with my higher power and apply these principles, I'm, I'm doing the right thing, right? My life's going to be okay, and he died happy, right? And I think that that's kind of everyone's goal as you recover from alcoholism. Um, now, that, that Sam Shoemaker experience developed... Um, from when they met in Asia, and basically what happened there is Sam said, this is awesome, like, why don't you come do this at Calvary Mission? And Bill told him, or Frank Buckman told him, why don't you do it? Uh, and and that, that's great, right? And it developed into this empowering um, of, of Sam, who we love, and he's been a very uh, great ambassador for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. But really what I want to get into is where Frank kind of developed the tenets and the five C's and the four absolutes, right? Because that's where a lot of, of our steps have, have come from. And uh, so sometime in 1919, Frank had come up with the five C's of, of basically his, his mission. And that was confidence, uh, confidence, developing a confidence that the other guy that you're trying to help, guy or gal that you're trying to help, has in you, right? So it's sitting down and saying, hey, here's, here's how I drank, this is what I did. Right, um, and then once they develop that confidence in you, in the confession, right, of just saying, "Hey, that guy confessing to you, hey, here's all my sins," right, and this this realization of, "Hey, I'm not living right. I got to do something about it. I got to tell somebody else." Um, and then the third C is conviction. So it's conviction that we kind of get from six and seven, right? We we kind of pray that away, whatever higher power, God of understanding, um, conversion. It's not a super evangelical, evangelical term. It's just, hey. It's a surrendering of a will, right? Like, I'm not living right. Sounds pretty familiar. Um, I'm going to turn it over to something else. And then uh, conservation or continuance, depending on what you read. And that's just one-on-one interaction with another human being, passing it on. Um, now, the four absolutes, they, you know, they're fantastic, too. As we talk, Adam talked about in that first reading of, hey, I got absolute love, uh, unselfishness, honesty, and purity. And, you know, I have trouble with purity, I think. A lot still to this day, but uh, within that is where we where they developed the six tenets. And the six tenets of the Oxford Group were complete deflation, dependence upon God, moral inventory, confession, restitution, 
and continue to work with others. So you can see how they kind of all fit together and, and kind of expand, right? Um, now, that happens all the way through the, th the early 30s, and then the Oxford group continues to go another way, and, and then uh, the good stuff starts to happen in my, in my history, right? Um, and that's where, where Bill Wilson gets exposed to Ebby. Ebby got sober any way you want to slice it. Bill and Ebby meet, and Ebby doesn't try and evangelize him, right? He doesn't try and, you know, say how, how great religion is. He just tells him how he drank, um, and he tells him what he was like, and he tells him what, it was like, what his life was like, and this went on for hours and hours. Um, now, depending on what you read, it depends on how long it ran, but what, what we know happened there is Bill got something out of that, right? Now, did he stay sober from that point forward? No. Um, but... The seed was planted. And that's what happened with me. The first time I came to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I drank four, four locos the day, the day I went to that meeting, an hour before I went to that meeting, right? And this guy who was a great member of Alcoholics Anonymous saw me in the cut drinking a four loco, knocked on my window and said, hey, what are you doing? I said, I'm drunk. I didn't know what else to say, right? And, uh, and he took me to my first AA meeting. And now I couldn't tell you what the format was or, or what was said or shared. But what I know is I walked in there and everybody looked different, right? They were happy, joyous, and free. They had this, this just attitude about them that there, there weren't many worries, right? And, and I was like, man, this is awesome. How are people living like this? Um, but what happened in my life and what I would imagine in Bill's is that he wasn't completely done, right? And he wasn't ready to really change. Um, he, I was trying to manage life on my own life's terms and, or manage life on my own terms and take control of all of that. Um, so I, I didn't apply anything. I didn't really work the steps. Um, and, and really all I was doing was reading the big book a lot. And I could, I could tell you, all, I could quote that big book inside and out, right? But I had no application of it in my own life. Um, so after Bill meets Evie, uh, you got Bill's just going at it, right? He's like, this is awesome, but I'm probably going to go ahead and drink again. And that was on Armistice Day, right? Um, and I, I really like that story because basically what happened was they're going out and they went, they went golfing on a public course so it was free and Lois wasn't real thrilled about it. Um, and they go to this first place for lunch and Bill says, he's explaining to the guy he's golfing with, he said, look, like I'm a hopeless alcoholic. I, like I, if I have one, this thing happens to me where, of course, he wasn't completely exposed to Dr. Silkworth yet, so he, but he probably said some along the lines of phenomenon craving develops and I can't stop on my own. And I have no control of how much I take once I start. Um, the guy said, wow, that's wild. And they're like, yep. And then they go on to play the back nine or whatever, another round. And then they get to the second place for dinner. And the bartender says, it's Armistice Day. There's champagne. And Bill takes the champagne glass and throws it back. And the guy looks at him and says, you must be crazy. And Bill said, I am. And, and that's my story, right? Like, I can completely relate to that. Because there were so many times when I was coming in inside and outside of the rooms where I was like, look, like, these guys have it going on. And I can't tell any of my – I'm telling all my friends I'm going to AA. Um, and so they're not drinking with me because they're out at the bar. They don't call me. And then everyone in AA isn't going to come drink with me, you know, because they're happy, joyous, and free. Uh, and and I, I think that's, you know, Bill got to a point of despair until he finally, in December 1934, goes into Towns Hospital for the last time and has a spiritual experience in there after trying to apply what Evie had, ta had taught him and told him about from the Oxford group. Um, and now for the six months after that, Bill Wilson was just running around trying to essentially evangelize people, right? And, and he, was, he had this business venture come up where he was going to be, like, there was this metalworking place and, or a company in Akron, Ohio that some people from New York were going to help him buy. And uh, basically what happened was that fell through, and he was at the Mayflower Hotel. I've never been yet. I'm sure some people here have been. 
um, hopefully get out there at one point. But the way I understand it is, you know, he's in the hotel lobby, and back the hallway, there's a bar, right? And in between there is the pay phones. And then right out the front door, there's like a, a little convenience store. Um, I forget what they called it at the time. But Bill's freaking out at this point. And he's like, look, like, all I've been doing is trying to help other people. No one's staying sober. I'm the only one doing it. And right before he left for that trip, Dr. Silberth had told him, like, hey, man, maybe you just try and relate to them, right, and, and gain their confidence. Um, and don't just try and tell them exactly what they need to do. Uh, give them some suggestions of how they can live and what you drank like and how your life has kind of changed as a result of that, even though you're the only one staying sober. And Bill was like, ah, okay, that sounds good, but now what am I going to do, right? Like, I really want to drink, and they're having fun. I could probably go in there and meet someone um, and, and have a couple drinks or, or just a ginger ale, I think was the quote, right? He was like, I'm just going to have a ginger ale. I've told myself that a couple of times. I'll just have one tonic water. <laughs> um, and then it would clearly be another, another debacle. Um, so Bill's standing there in the Mayflower Hotel, and, and what the Oxford group was doing at the time was two-way prayer, right? Bill had developed this this connection with this higher power as a result of surrendering his life and his will and trying to help other people and applying these six tenets to his life. Um, and, and constantly over and over again when Bill would be in his own mind, essentially, um, he would stop and ask for guidance, right? And that's what they were doing, this thing called fingertip guidance at the time where you would keep a little notebook in your pocket and write down everything that kind of came to your mind and you would just try and determine what was your will and what was your higher power's will for your life and you know things like call my ex-girlfriend and go over to her house were probably not from God so it's kind of a process of elimination there um, but like you know call, call Dylan and ask him how he's doing like those are the things that you know you, you probably carry out and that's God's will for your life and you're trying to apply that um, so you know Bill stops and asks for guidance and he realizes that what he can do is he can Get in, the, get in the phone book uh, for some of you young people. It's like this giant thing that has no... Uh, 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 people just grow up with cell phones. It's nice. But, so he gets in the phone book and realizes he could probably find uh, a pastor that has connections to the Oxford group. And this is probably one of my favorite stories about Alcoholics Anonymous and just how it all developed. Not because only is it you know, kind of inspired by, by a higher power. Um, but I can relate to it, right? Because Bill didn't want to drink. He knew what would happen if he drank again, right? And he, he knows he'll go right back to the way it was. It never gets better, no matter how long he goes without drinking. It only starts where he left off, and it gets worse. Um, so he, he calls this guy, and he says, hey, you know anyone in the Oxford group that might have an alcoholic? It's got to be an alcoholic. Uh, the strenuous work one alcoholic with another is vital to permanent recovery, Right. Um, and Bill was just on that idea, and you know he had lots of people he knew in the Oxford group, so he gave him ten numbers. Um, and it's Saturday afternoon; uh, no one had cell phones, so people aren't home, or people aren't interested, or people don't know of any alcoholics that, that need help. Um, and he gets down to that tenth number that he got. Right? Um, it's this concept for me of like, what am I? What length am I willing to go to for my own recovery? Right? Because he could have called that one guy, didn't answer. Well, it's Saturday afternoon. No one's going to be around. I'm going to go in there and get that ginger ale. And I don't know where I would be, um, you know, some 87 years later. But Bill finally gets down and he gets a hold of Henrietta Sieberling and she says, hey, come over here uh, to the Michelin Mansion. Essentially, she lived at the gatehouse. I got a guy I can link you up with. His name is Dr. Bob. So he goes over there, right? And Dr. Bob's on a bender. Um, Ann Smith can't get him over there. So she said, you know, you got to wait till tomorrow. And that's a whole other day he's got to wait uh, till he can get in contact with another alcoholic. 
and Bill stayed sober through that, right? And then you finally get that, that historical meeting of Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson, and, and Bill just told him exactly how he drank. He said, here's the things that I've done in my life. Here's, here's what I've applied to my life, these six tenants. Um, maybe you ought to try this. And, and Dr. Bob was like me, that he had tried, you know, getting hands laid on him, getting prayed over, people speaking in tongues over you. Uh, I certainly drank after that, right? Um, that stuff didn't work. I mean, the book talks about that, right? You have to have the spiritual experience that works like nothing else does. Um, and, and that's what happened there with Bill and Dr. Bob. Now, Dr. Bob, kind of similar story, right? He, uh, he got sober for a couple weeks and realized, hey, I, I've been going. I'm a proctologist. I go to this surgeon's clinic every year down in Atlantic City. I don't know if y'all have ever been to Atlantic City. Um, I was there way, way later, but it's a tough place for somebody who's not trying to uh, sin or, or, or you know, live a moral life. Uh, it's not easy. So Dr. Bob comes back and, and no one can get a hold of him. He was, I think he was like two days late, whatever. Uh, finally, his secretary calls Ann Smith's house and says, hey, Bill's there, right? And they're trying to look for him because he's got this big surgery coming up that only he can do. And they say, hey, we picked him up from the train station at four in the morning. We need to come over here and help him. Uh, and Bill didn't give up on him, right? Bill went over there and him and Ann Smith were kind of tapering, tapering Dr. Bob off to where he could get to a point where he could perform this surgery. Um, and, and what I think is so profound in that, right, is Dr. Bob had one, one last trip and it didn't go well and he knew it and it kind of had a, a mini spiritual awakening in that. And so they taper him off and they finally get him to where he's not too jittery to, to perform this surgery. And then he, Dr. Bob goes, performs the surgery and then disappears again, right? And Bill, and, Bill and Ann Smith are like, oh man, we lost him again. That's not true at all. What happened was he immediately went out after that surgery and started making restitution, right? He was making amends, working nine steps as we know it now. Um, and that spiritual awakening started to happen, right? We, we hear that in the book all the time of how and how it works, or uh, the the, uh, prom, the nine step promises. If we were painstaking about this phase of our development, would be made before halfway through. That's when life really started to change, and, and things started to change in my life when I started to make those amends and, and make restitution. And then they realized, hey, we're, we're both sober. We got a couple of days of sobriety for for Dr. Bob, right? We got to go out and help somebody else. And that was on June tenth, nineteen thirty five. Um, now, I think it's roughly, depending on where you read, like the 26th, they found the third AA, right? Bill Dodson, the, the guy in the bed. Um, and, and that's a profound story for me, too, because they go in there, the guy's in town's hospital, right? Um, and they go in there and they tell him about these six tenants and they, they talk to him and, and gain his confidence. Um, they tell him what, what, they, what he can do. And I think that the best part of that whole story is he's in detox, as we would call it now. Right? And they said, well, what we want you to do is when you leave from here, we want you to immediately go and help somebody else. Not, not wait a year, not work the 12 steps, not wait 90 days and get a spot. They immediately go out and help somebody else. Um, and so he did. And, and you can read about it in A Vision for You. It's, that's probably my favorite chapter personally um, where they get done with that. And they say, well, we got three of us. We better get to work. Uh, and, and that's been my experience, right? Like I, uh, I moved back to my hometown of Pennsylvania, and, and it's this place where uh, three legacy groups don't exist, um, or, or, or really just they as a, as a whole fellowship is lacking, and it's not anyone's fault, they just haven't been exposed, right? They haven't had anybody like Bill come in and try and tell them how to live, um, and, and they haven't experienced that themselves, and basically 
you know, we started a group there and, and we're the only group in the county that, that sells a literature, right? And that's not, that is not a prideful thing at all. I promise you, like, I, I come to you in complete humility saying that, but like, there are pockets like that in America that still exist 87 years, 86 years later that people just don't know how good life can be because no one has ever brought them the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Literally haven't, many haven't read the book um, and that's a problem. So, you know, they, they start to realize what's going on and, and by applying these six tenets, we can get some people behind this. And, and you know, there, there weren't always just a bunch of successes. There were some that, that fell off just like I did and some that came back, but their lives did get better. We read about that too, right, in the book. Um, and basically by, you know, November 1937, with the, they were still with the Oxford Group at the time, um, but the group that had started it at Dr. Bob's house, uh, there were 40 success stories of, of alcoholics applying these six tenets to their life, and they thought we're onto something here, you know. Um, and then, you know, you can go back and look at what newspaper articles and the, the stuff of the Rockefellers, um, and and basically AA was just growing this notoriety, uh, or really just uh, the, the the word about them was spreading quickly, and it was to a point where no one. There weren't enough people so sober they could help everybody that needed help. Uh, that's probably this, the problem still today. So they decided they needed to write a book. Um, and in, in uh, 1938, Bill Wilson sat down with Hank Parkhurst and started to write the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And now uh, that was kind of a, a messy situation, right? Because you have Hank Parkhurst, who's known atheist agnostic. Um, Bill Wilson, who's had this experience and, and has a deep relationship with God of his understanding. Um, and Ruth Hawk just trying to dictate it all on a typewriter, right? She's a non-alcoholic as well, and she's just typing it all out. And, and that, was, that was Bill's secretary at the time. And Bill was traveling back and forth from New York to Akron. Um, and now there's also a small pocket of, of Oxford groupers that were strictly alcoholics in, in Cleveland. Um, I'm probably just going to kind of focus on New York and, and Akron just for lack of time so I don't go all the way to 1129. But basically what was happening is... is Bill and a couple other guys realized that Akron is a great pocket. We got 40 success stories out there. They started meeting in New York City on Clinton Street, Bill's old house, um, and, and that was a tumultuous affair, right? Uh, guys just weren't getting it for whatever reason, um, but, but they never quit, right? They would go out to Akron, see what they were doing there, see how basically people would show up to these house parties, right? And they would just say, hey, this is what we're doing with our life. Um, they would read some, some things out of other books, and then they would go out into the world and try and help other people, right? Specifically alcoholics, and it was it was turning out pretty good. Um, and and then it, it's in 1940. Uh, no, back up to just a little bit. So December 1939, Bill Wilson sits down to write the steps. Um, now I don't, you know, it depends on what you read. I believe probably he just prayed a lot, and and he had six tenets, that, but you needed to break it down even further. Um, and those are the twelve. Here. Those are twelve steps as we know them today. It's, it's basically how they came out the first time he sat down and wrote them. Um, there's small, small changes from Hank sitting down and saying, "Hey, what, what the heck, man? Like we got God in the, in essentially the, the latter part of the six tenets. Um, why is he all the way up there in the in the third step?" Um, and that's just kind of how it worked out. And to me, that, that shows me that it's divinely inspired, right? That nobody can really make sense of it. Um, and, and that's kind of my life, right? It's like, I can't really make sense. And when I try to, it gets worse. And, but all I know is that when I apply these steps and the principles behind it, my life seems to get better. And so does it for everybody that I surround myself with. Um, 
Now, as a result of the steps coming out, you know, there was a back and forth of sending the transcript and the manuscript out to the, the rest of the fellowship. Um, I believe, this is probably the only time I'll inject my, my real opinion, I believe that it was kind of like a close hold thing, right? That there was like this, they were projecting this idea that, hey, like this is, you guys redo this and edit the, edit the manuscript as you want and send it back to us, we'll take some suggestions and, and we'll kind of change that stuff. That didn't happen, right? It just didn't, <laughs> like anywhere you read, it was basically like, it was like, okay, like I, I, because he was short, right? He was positive from applying it to his life and from watching the life change in the people that he was helping out and the guys that he would see come into the rooms and into the house parties, um, he knew that, that he was on the right path, but they just had to get this book out immediately. Um, and that's why the steps stayed as they are, and then they, they finished the rest of that book. And then early 1930, or April 1939, the, the, the book was published and printed um, for distribution because at that point it was only really a word-of-mouth program because you had three little pockets between New York City, Cleveland, and Akron that were doing this thing. And as, as we all know, there's millions of people who could, who could benefit from applying these principles. Um, and, you know, my life was completely revolutionized by these 12 steps in those six tenets and everybody that's in this room. Um, by getting a sponsor, I sat down with him and he told me very early on, right, that you've, you've known you're powerless over alcohol for a very long time, but at some point when you, when you put it down and try and quit on your own, you think you can manage your life better than God. Um, and that hit me like a ton of bricks, sticks with me, I think about it daily, you know, because uh, it was 100% right. And, and he told me how he drank, he told me the things that he had done, he told me how he had tried to quit on his own, and none of that stuff worked. The only thing that had worked for this man was reading the book, getting a sponsor, and applying these principles. Um, so we started working through that stuff, right? And, and I was a little bit like Hank Parker's, where I didn't think I needed a relationship with God. I thought I could do everything on my own, and I was really kind of closed off to it. Um, and, and as a result of just reading the book, right, and you get in there and it says, Kane, are you ever willing to believe in a power greater than yourself? And I said, yes. So we kept going, you know, and, and my sponsor said, hey, you know, you get to that point and you say, no, that's okay. I'll love you. I'll love you regardless, right? Nobody had ever told me that before I came to the room of Alcoholics Anonymous. Like, hey, you can go do whatever you want. And when you're ready for this thing, come back, right? Everyone else had always told me, Hey, if you don't change this, I'm leaving. If you can't, which rightfully so, the ex-wife should have left, right? Uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that now. Um, but like, she, she's like, hey, you know, if you don't do these things, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna take kids. I'm gonna, you know, parents said, hey, you can't come, you can't drink in here, right? You, you, you tear stuff up. So if you're gonna drink when you're here, you can't stay here. Um, and I would get mad and be selfish about it, right? And it was deserving, but Alcoholics Anonymous told me, hey, like, we're not going to support that idea, right? But if, if, if you don't think you're done, go finish the job. And when you're ready, you come back, and we're going to love you right where you're at. Um, and that, to me, is the most powerful concept behind all of it, is this fact that I can try and run life on my own, um, but I always have a place that I can come where I'll be accepted. And if I apply these principles that everybody's doing and, and, and living a life of happy, being happy, joyous, and free, I'm not going to want to drink and live life on my own terms anymore, right? I'm not going to want to be in control um, because my, my control of my life is what got me here, um, and I can't do it very well. So we get to step three, and I realize that maybe, just maybe, some type of higher power that may exist uh, could probably – I could probably turn my will over that, and things might get a little better. 
Um, and it's really because hundreds of people like you um, sitting in here and, and trying to carry that message that I, that I believe that. And I could look back, you know, the book talks about it. Uh, we look back and realize the thing which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Um, and, and that was my life, right? And I know one thing that has stuck with me, it's not really history, and I, I won't get into too many. I don't think this is a slogan. But um, at Medoc, the Medoc experience this past year, a guy said, God didn't save me when I got to AA. He saved me until I could get to AA. Um, and I, I was tearing up right there. Like, I had a mini spiritual experience about that uh, just because, like, that's what happened, right? I had been in combat. I've been blown up. I've been living life on my own, drinking and driving and blackout, right? Why else would I be here if it wasn't for some kind of purpose? Um, so I needed to find that purpose. And that purpose was only pointed out to me by, by taking some suggestions. And that's what's great is about Alcoholics Anonymous as well is it wasn't – I didn't come in here and you guys said, now you're going to work these 12 steps perfectly. Um, and if you don't, you got to go. Uh, no, I said, hey, you, you, just, you just try and put these into your life as much as you can. Um, and my sponsor told me you can work in 10, 11, and 12 right now. Uh, and, and that's a great concept to me because I was always told I had to meet all of these other things that have developed that weren't ever in the book. Um, you know, 90 meetings, 90 days, which I think is good. I'm not saying these things are bad, but either what was told to me or the way I interpreted them, I thought that in order to get this thing, I had to do all of this other stuff. 90 meetings, 90 days. Wait 90 days to get a sponsor because I had to have the right one. Um, find, go to all these different meetings and don't pick a home group or be of service at that home group until I find one I really like. I'm an alcoholic. I don't like when anybody tells me to do anything. So I'm, I'm not going to like any group I show up to for the first time, you know, um, which isn't true. My old home group, I, I mean, I just felt at home the moment I walked into that place. Um, but that's what was cool to me is it was just a suggestion. Nobody told me exactly how to do it. And, and they just said, hey, here's what I did. Here's what worked for me. And I think what's great about sponsorship and where that all came from, right, is like they realized that, heck, we got, we're going to have to do some one-on-one -on -one work, um, which is really what separated the Alcoholics Anonymous from any other entity that was trying to do any kind of social reform or, or purity movements. Um, it was the singleness of purpose in one-on-one -on -one interaction, one alcoholic to another. Um, he said, hey, like, you got to give this a shot uh, and we'll see what happens. So I sat down and I did my moral inventory, right? And that was a phenomenal experience because I was completely open and honest for the first time in my life. And essentially what happened was I put down everything on paper because the wife was gone. She wasn't going to find it and read it. So I could write about all that heinous stuff that I didn't want her to find out about, which she probably already knew. You know? um, but, you know, and then my sponsor said, hey, you did all that, right? You don't do a fourth step to find out who you are. You do it to find who you're not. Um, and that, to me, was, was super powerful because... I thought that this was exactly who I am, and I can't ever look at these sins. I can't ever look at these uh, moral deficiencies of mine because I'm, I'm not good enough to have a relationship with anything else, and I'm no good. No one's going to love me. Alcoholic Anonymous loved me, right? So I sat down and wrote them all out. My sponsor tells me some things that he's probably only told his sponsors and guys, guys that he sponsors. Um, and, and we sat and talked about, you know, he did the cross-legged, cross-arm thing where he stares at the floor, which... I'm new at this point, but my, I'm still developing that relationship. I thought, man, this is weird. Like he just said, what else? And I'm like, well, I t what do you mean, what else? <laughs> I don't know what else. Um, but something else, something else always came out, right? Um, and we did that for probably an hour and a half. But what I know now is what he was doing there is he was praying, right? And it's so simple. I don't know if he just knew I was withholding or 
I mean, I wasn't doing it intentionally, right? But I, and I thought I had run everything else out there. But as he's sitting there praying and I'm, I'm in the presence of that, things just continue to spill out. Um, and this weight was lifted off my shoulders. And then what was great is, is as soon as we got done five, we had all, all the moral deficiencies that I had, right? All these character defects, um, the things that were blocking me off from having a relationship with a higher power, things that were blocking me off from being useful to other people. Um, and then we prayed him away, right? And he told me very simply that if there was something that I could do to change those character defects, I would have done it by now, right? I, I, I did that. I tried to experiment with many different ways, um, whether it was, you know, it, it was manipulation. That's what it was. We just leave it at that. And, uh, and so we prayed those away. And, and he, he said, I'm sure there's some things that you're not willing to really let go of right now, right? And that's okay. Ask God to make you be willing to let those things go. Um, and then we had already had the list of people that I had harmed and, the one thing that we did on top of that was we made a list of people that I probably didn't resent, but probably resented me. There's tons of those. Um, and, and I had to make amends to those people. And I left that meeting that day from 5 to 9, right? And I left out and immediately started making restitution um, and making amends. And that's when that spiritual awakening started to happen. And that was, I don't know, it, was, it wasn't as early as Earl Treat, um, but it, that, he was, you know, three, four days sober. Um, but it was early on, and it was earlier than I'd ever tried it before, but my life was revolutionized, and I could see how it was impacting my own mentality and people around me, right? Because I was working this job in Army at the time where I went right back to where I was working before I, got, so for, before I stopped drinking. So everybody else could see me, like, what happened to this guy, right? Because work was cool, and they were like, hey, take 90 days. Like, this guy in here today probably doesn't even recognize me, right? Because um, he hadn't seen me in a while, and that's, but that's where I was, right? Like, I had this demeanor about me that I was... I was useless because I was, um, because I had no concept of helping anybody else. It was complete. I was completely run by selfishness and self-pity um, until I found these steps in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I go out and start making amends, and, and I'll kind of talk about 10, 11, and 12 briefly because I was, I was working those very early on because I think either the second or third time um, that I sat down with my sponsor, he said, again, live in 10, 11, and 12, right? Um, it's pretty simple. You watch for when jealousy, resentment, fear, dishonesty crop up. Uh, as soon as that happens, you talk to someone about it, you pray about it, and you immediately toward your, turn your attention toward how you can help somebody else. And that was a foreign concept to me at the time. Those are four simple steps that you can take inside that 10th step that, in my experience, will change my attitude about whatever I got going on. Um, there's just something magical by helping somebody else that it makes me forget about all how terrible all my problems are, right? And, and how small they really are. And that if I just get out of myself and stop being selfish, I can maybe impact somebody else um, in, in, a, in a beneficial way. Um, then 11, it's pretty simple. Just pray, right? Like whatever, whatever concept you got of that, whatever that looks like, start somewhere. Because um, I was that guy, I was like, well, I got a, oh, Holy Spirit. Like, oh, that wasn't, that's not how I talk, right? It's just not. Um, so for me, early on, it was like the third step prayer every day or serenity prayer 150 times a day. Um, and then step 12, he said, you got a day of sobriety, a set of car keys, and the driver's license in the top 0.1% of AA. So you better be taking <laughs> a car full of drunks everywhere you go. And, and, you know, he never said 90 and 90. I probably did that um, because work had given me off, and I was just kind of figuring out how I could get a good foundation of recovery. And I would just ask I would see all these guys that were at that home group down in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and I would ask them, hey, like, what are you doing? What do you do every day for, for this prayer thing? How, what do you do on Sundays? What do you do throughout the week? 
Um, and we were just going all over to meetings. I, would, I was so sick as an alcoholic that I went to pretty much every meeting in the Triangle, Fayetteville. I had to venture out to Moore County every now and then. And then all the way out to Wilmington. Um, and, and there were only, you know, three or four that I felt really at home at. Um, and even all the way up to Wilson Rocky Mountain. Like, there's only a couple that I felt really at home at. And, and it's not because they're the only ones doing it right. Right? It's because it's what works for them and what works for me. And I like that. Right? I love that we don't have this monopoly on recovery and, and no group has, has say in, in exactly what happens. Right? 1212 says every group has a right to be wrong. You know? um, and I, I, I get that. You know? And there's probably things that we do perfectly all the time in my home group. But from working these steps and applying 10, 11, and 12 in my life and having this God consciousness about the group, it's developed into like, I can't play God. I played God for 30 years. Um, and it brought me to where I didn't have a will to live. Uh, and then by watching the fellowship grow about me, I could see that like, if we don't have all the literature set up by 6.30, no one's probably going to drink that night, you know? Um, and they, they, these guys are where I'm at now. Like, they don't know what right looks like, what my perception of right is, right? They just know that there's some meeting and they can come and, and kind of hear, hear some people talk about this book that they've never seen before, but they look happy and they have a car and they're not, you know, shooting dope every weekend and, and doing whatever. Um, and so that was, that's been my experience. And, and, you know, I think that the, the best part of all of that history is that you can see how a higher power kind of just came in and inserted himself and said, hey, this is how this is going to go, right? And Alcoholics Anonymous just blew up after the early 40s. And there were a lot of trying times in there, just like there will be for me and in my own recovery of, hey, like oh, we're going to get involved in some, I know it's in a tradition talk, we're going to get involved in a whole bunch of, of treatment centers. Like, well, that doesn't really work. We can't professionalize it. And that's really... We learned what the Washingtonians were trying to do and, and developed our, our traditions off of that and from our own experiences and shortfalls, right? And, and what's so special to me about that is that with this overall God consciousness, right, I believe that the fellowship as a whole will always survive. And I know when you write the statistics that, that you kind of you can make, you can fudge the numbers. I'm, I'm from the Army, so, like, I've been lying on slideshows since the day I became a non-commissioned officer. <laughs> Which I changed when I got sober, I promise you. I, well, really, I stopped making slides, what happened. Um, it's, it's impossible, right? You're trying, you're trying to appease the man, and, and you do want to make these things look attractive, and I'm probably... <laughs> I'm probably butchering these numbers, but I, and you can one of the old times of more than 40 years can call me out on it after the meeting and when we bust out the big book. But I know that, that somewhere in there, early on when the, when the book first came about, right, there was something like uh, it was 80 percent of people were recovered, right? When when you do the essentially the census, right, of the fellowship, which I, I mean, if you were like me going to 90 meetings in 90 days, I was I was probably head counted seven times at seven different meetings, you know. So, but like. That doesn't matter because the people doing the census kept the consistency throughout, right, at GSO. And you look at what had happened right in the, in the very beginning when the second edition came out in the 50s. You're looking at almost 80% of successful recoveries. Um, and that was when we just had the book. People were being sponsored. People were applying these principles and trying to work with other people, right? And, and even all throughout that, right, from the Oxford group to the AA, um, where the shortcomings were within the groups, whether it be New York or Akron at the beginning, um, it was this idea that we were telling you what to do, right? Um, and, and I'm just gonna tell you exactly how to live and I'm essentially gonna evangelize you. It doesn't work, right? And, and it never has for me. 
Um, so it's a matter of just saying, hey, why don't you pick up this stuff and read this book, right? Like that's the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to me. That's where the successes lie. And as you fast forward to the printing of the fourth edition, there's something like 10% of recoveries. And I don't know why that is. You could delve into that, and I don't know, maybe there's some scientists in here that know, and I don't. Um, but what I, from my own understanding, is it's we've developed all these other things when at the end of the day, all I have to do is, is sit down with one alcoholic and try and pass on what's so freely been given to me um, and teach him about these principles. And that's why I went all the way back to the, to the early 1900s because like, I'm like, I gotta know how this works, right? There's no way my, my sponsor got this all figured out. He's a pretty smart guy, but no way, right? I have to have that spiritual experience of the educational variety like Bill had and it didn't happen overnight. Um, but what I got out of that was a completely revolutionized life. Um, and now, today, what that looks like is I just show up, I try and be humble, um, and I try and pass on exactly what was given to me. I don't try and sugarcoat it. I don't water it down with all these other external factors. Um, I keep it simple. And easy. No, man, it's like, look, the book of Alcoholics Anonymous has helped millions and millions of people. I'm going to stay in that, and, and hopefully that you can develop a relationship with your higher power that leads you to the same experience that I had and then you are able to then pass that on to other people because that's the only way this thing continues to work you know and uh, there's tons of people around that, that helped me early on um, and then you know you, I think we've all been there we have a, a, a hardcore group of friends that we get sober with and, and you develop those relationships and everybody kind of jocks and goes their own way one guy might love surfing one guy might just want to be a preacher and go to seminary um, but I know that I will always stay involved in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous because if everybody else had done that from 1934 on, it's been like, hey, this is kind of cool. I'm going to go take this and take it to my little pocket over here. Um, the doors would have been open. No, no hot coffee would have been on whenever I walked in the rooms. Um, and I'm, I'm eternally, eternally grateful for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. So if you got nothing really out of the history, hopefully you can at least know that when you go from here today, all you have to do is apply some simple spiritual principles, right? Those six tenets of just knowing that, that you don't want to go back to that way of living, right? And, and you've already confessed that. And you can sit down with one other guy, right? And uh, it doesn't, I, I would absolutely suggest it be another alcoholic. The book suggests that as well. But if you're in a place like Lewistown, Pennsylvania, and there's like four people sober, then sit down with your cellmate or your boss and just confess those things. And then whatever you got to do, right? Um, but get that out there and make that confession and then immediately turn your attention towards somebody that you can help. Right? Um, and that's pretty much all I got. Woo!